Good evening, I'm Sharon Dunn. This is Ideas, with the second program in our series, The Politics of Information. Tonight's broadcast is called Decolonizing the News, The Politics of Information and the Third World. The series is prepared and presented by David Cayley. For the countries of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, who make up that vast category which we call the Third World, the problem of information dependence is acute. Control over the flow of information is very close to the root of political power. When this control is exercised from the United States or other Western countries, the political sovereignty of Third World countries is directly threatened. And without effective sovereignty, it becomes increasingly difficult to deal with the intractable social and economic problems which most Third World countries face. Here, from Juan Somavia, is a measure of the extent of the problem. In the case of Latin America, if you take a look at newspapers, you would find that around 60% of foreign material comes from either UPI or AP. If you analyze television programs, you have a situation that goes from 50 to 60% of American content to situations in which you have 80 to 90% of American content. If you analyze the situation in the advertising field, the reality is that the style and the mode of advertising prevalent in Latin America is basically a U.S. imported model of advertising. But beyond the quantitative aspects of the situation, what in fact you have is a model of information which is basically oriented by the uh, conceptions prevailing in the United States in relation to the manner in which information has to be organized and the process of communication stimulated. Over the last 10 years, recognition of this problem has led third world governments to put forward the demand for what they have called a new world information order. This is a slogan as much as a proposal, so what it means partly depends on whom you talk to. But the fundamental underlying idea is that the present inequalities in information exchange between the Western and Third World countries must give way to a more balanced and more genuinely reciprocal relationship. This notion has not met with a favorable response in the West. It has been denounced, sometimes violently, by both press and politicians who have claimed that any political attempt to restructure the world's information economy would constitute a dangerous and unwarranted interference with the free flow of information. The way in which this reaction has been expressed reminds me of a cartoon I once saw in which a bearded psychiatrist is holding a shapeless ink blot up to the gaze of a grim-looking gentleman who is saying, I see creeping socialism, welfare chiselers, and the erosion of physical integrity in government. Diverse and complex, though the subject of international communications may be, Western media commentators seem to have had no difficulty in deciding that they know what they're looking at and they don't like what they see. Take, for example, an article by the New York Times' Harrison Salisbury called The Third World Threat to Our Free Press, which appeared, you'll have to take my word for this, in this month's Penthouse magazine. Mr. Salisbury describes the New World Information Order as a creeping disease and says that he finds the idea to be reminiscent of Nazi Germany. 
Here is an excerpt from his article. For 10 years, the new world information order, conceived within the third world and enthusiastically encouraged by communist diplomats, has been slowly drawing a dirty gray scrim over whole continents and parts of continents. A new world information order. The words echo Goebbels in Nazi Germany, but the inspiration comes not from Nazi survivals, not from communism or totalitarianism per se. It comes from the developing world, that unstable mix of backward, semi-developed, self-conscious, aspiring countries, proud, sensitive of their new nationhood, largely inexperienced, which constitutes almost the totality of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and a healthy percentage of Latin America. These are countries that believe themselves victimized, unfairly treated by the sophisticated Western media and the capitalist press. The number one target is the U.S., naturally. Other commentators have concurred, though not always in such flamboyant terms, with Harrison Salisbury. The CTV Network's public affairs program W5 recently described the New World Information Order debate as a battlefield on which the Western nations face a vast array of dictatorships of the left and right. This report could find in the whole issue of information exchange nothing more than a communist-inspired attack on the free press. The Globe and Mail's most recent treatment of the subject ran under the headline The West's Battle for Press Freedom. At times, it seems like a latter-day version of Custer's Last Stand. Behind this monotonously negative coverage lies self-interest, of course, but also, I would say, the need to reduce an inherently complex subject in which a variety of distinct points of view can be recognized to a simple, dramatic structure. And so a whole lot of different stories are collapsed into one, freedom versus control, and its variants, capitalism versus communism, and the free press versus the state. What gets lost in these simplifications are two essential points. The first is that for the West, the free flow of information is as much a commercial windfall as it is an ethical standard. The second is that for third world countries, the state is the only conceivable instrument by which they can begin to counteract the vast power of the transnational companies who now dominate and direct the flow of information in the world. With these two provisos in mind, we may now be in a better position to make a more realistic assessment of the New World Information Order. The term itself derives from debates and discussions that have taken place at UNESCO, a specialized agency of the UN. But before we examine how these debates developed, let's look first at what information dependence really means for the third world. A good place to begin that examination is with the transnational news agencies. There are four major Western agencies, the Associated Press, United Press International, Reuters, and Agence France Press. And between them, they control over 80% of the world news flow. For third world countries, this means that even news of their own region is frequently processed through London, Paris, or New York. Rohan Samarajiva is a Sri Lankan lawyer turned radio news editor who is now studying in the communications department at Simon Fraser University, 
where he has just completed a thesis about the world news economy. He says that the key to the major agencies' market domination lies in their flexible pricing policy. You see, once you produce a piece of news, let's say a news report, the cost of making copies of that is marginal. You just feed it into the wire and it'll come out of somebody else's teleprinter. It doesn't cost you anything. And what happens is that there are basically three sectors in the, in the world news market. One is the home market of the world of the transnational news agency. Let's say for the American agencies, it's the United States. Then there is what I would call the secondary market, which is high buying power areas. Yet, those are not the home market. In the case of the United States agencies, it would be Europe, it would be Japan, and it would be Canada. And then there would be the third sector, the tertiary sector, as I would call it, which is the third world, which is quite, which is much lower in buying power. And the same product is sold in these three sectors at widely differing rates. The estimates I have is that an average U.S. newspaper would pay $200,000 U.S. for a year for AP copy. The AP basic AP product would be sold in France for approximately 20,000 U.S. and in the third world, around, this is a rough figure, around 2,000 U.S. Now that's the kind of differentiation between the three market sectors. The implications of this setup are revealed by comparison with the more familiar situation of Canadian cultural industries, which face competition from cheap American product, which has already paid its costs in its home market. The third world faces the same situation in news. The third world is everybody's dumping ground. Uh, news that a third world agency, if it is to produce an equivalent product, with, of course, the third world uh, interpretation and so on, you know, the non-economic factors coming in, but in terms of quality, in terms of speed, uh, comprehensiveness and so on, they would have to spend this enormous amount of money to produce that, which would sometimes be, well, let's say, they would have to spend about as much as any other transnational news agency would. And yet they cannot distribute their costs because A, the high buy buying power segments are shut out to them, and in their own countries, in their own territories where they have some kind of specific special appeal, they have to fight with this dumped product, which is being sold at very low prices. And this is a, a thing that I have sort of cooked up out of my mind. Uh, the Latin, there's a news agency called Latin in based in Uruguay. And they said so specifically in their brief to the McBride Commission that they cannot operate, that they find great difficulty because of dumping. And I mean dumping in the strict economic sense, like steel pipes, lumber, automobiles, and so on. The domination of world news reporting by the major Western agencies has its roots in the 19th century. Agency operations followed in the wake of colonial administration and eventually a cartel was established among the European agencies which shared out spheres of influence more or less according to the political power of the agency's home country. Following the First World War and the collapse of German imperial power, the markets controlled by the German agency, Wolf, were shared out between the British Reuters and the French Havas. And following the Second World War, with the United States now in a dominant position, 
the American agencies, particularly Associated Press, sought to finally break the control of the European cartel. Herbert Schiller, professor of communications at the University of California, San Diego. This was a period where the old system was fractured as a result of the Second World War, and some of the older power uh, relationships were temporarily in suspension. But of course, uh, there were still a couple of dominant forces in the field, and of course, in the area of news agencies, the dominant force was Reuters. Uh, the, the British uh, news agency. And if you go back, and there's a great documentation on this, and in fact some of the directors of AP have written books on the subject, oh, many, many decades ago, where they express their hostility to Reuters' control of international news agencies. The head of AP is uh, on record with that in a very famous book which was called Barriers Down. And Barriers Down meant to break the control that Reuters exerted in the international collection of news and dissemination of news. And almost all of the protestations and all of the uh, opposition that you find amongst the American news agency's leaders uh, were very frank, very material, very pointed criticisms of how if you owned a news agency or controlled a news agency, you were able to retail your view of the world and your view of what was correct and incorrect, and you made your definitions. Now, this is all stated very openly in the opposition to Reuters and the European cartel. Of course, now in more recent years, when it's the United States and these agencies that run the fairs, they, they are just absolutely, you know, aghast that anybody should even mention that there'd be anything imperfect in the way they're doing things and the idea that there would be any kind of American definitions or American ways and perspectives that influence the way news is collected, the way what even defines news and how it's presented from whatever particular national viewpoint, this is regarded as just absolutely, you know, you, you, you're being very vulgar to raise such a question. The banner under which American media interests began to expand their international markets was the free flow of information. If I were to be granted one point of foreign policy and no other, said John Foster Dulles, I would make it the free flow of information. Assistant Secretary of State William Benton, speaking in January 1946, was more explicit. The State Department plans to do everything within its power along political or diplomatic lines, he said, to help break down the artificial barriers to the expansion of private American news agencies, magazines, motion pictures, and other media of communications throughout the world. But although there was an avowedly commercial motive for this expansion, it also had a powerful and genuine ideological justification arising from the experience of fascism and war. Juan Somavia is a Chilean who directs the Latin American Institute for Transnational Studies in Mexico City. The idea of liberalism, of open frontiers, of open doors, of nations trading with each other and in contact uh, was an extremely important element that presided over the minds of those that were thinking about the post-World War structure. If you take a look at the economic side, the principal rules uh, governing trade are those of GATT, which are oriented by the idea that you have to reduce progressively your tariff barriers towards foreign products. If you see the articles of the International Monetary Fund in financial affairs, what you see there is a progressively liberal structure tending to arrive at a situation in which there is a free flow in the monetary field. 
And finally, if you take a look at the communication side, you also find that the principles set up after the Second World War respond to this general vision of a world which uh, eliminates its barriers for contact, be it financial, monetary, trade, uh, or information-wise. And that is the way we arrive at the concept of the free flow of information. Now, as all structures of free flow, uh, they normally benefited those that are more capable of participating in a flow of any kind, of a commercial nature, of a monetary one, of an industrial one, of a technological one, and also so in the information field. So that what in fact happened is that under the aegis of the principle of the free flow of information, which I must add is a legitimate principle per se, the effects of its application in fact benefited those countries that were the dominant ones in the field of information, basically the United States and some of the European countries. An area in which American influence was particularly marked was in the creation of the United Nations and its specialized agencies. One of these, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, subsequently became the venue for the third world's demands for a new information order. But in the 1940s, when it was created, it largely reflected American priorities. Herbert Schiller has written about the origins of UNESCO in his book, Communications and Cultural Domination. What was actually affected was the embodiment of this free flow doctrine into the actual operating mechanisms of UNESCO. And in fact, they even established within the UNESCO structure a division called the free flow of information that was set up at the very beginning, you see. And for a very significant period of time from the formation of UNESCO in 46 to 68, a period of, of well over 20 years, UNESCO, just as almost every other international organization, uh, reflected overwhelmingly the positions taken, the views expressed, and the stance of U.S. foreign policy. Certainly in the 50s, uh, the end of the 40s and the 50s, uh, there was no possibility of any uh, a significant opposition to U.S. positions because uh, most of what we now call the third world was not yet in these international organizations. UNESCO in, in its formative period in the uh, late 40s and at its origins had something like 55 member states, which is less than one-third of what they have in the organization today. By the 1960s, decisive changes in the shape of the world order were beginning to be evident. As more and more nations were freed from colonial administration, there began to take shape a new political bloc, which has been known under various names and in various organizational forms as the developing countries, the non-aligned movement, the third world, and most recently, simply as the South. And as these states began to get in touch with both the possibilities and the limitations of formal independence, they began to challenge the orthodoxy of what was known as international development. In communications, this orthodoxy consisted in supposing that development could be measured by counting movie screens, television sets, and radio receivers without regard for what was on them. Juan Somavia. We were told what was the best model of development for us. And we were told that as the developed countries, as they were then called, had reached a certain stage of well-being, so does the, the 
south, or the developing countries, as they were then called, should reach that same level of well-being by simply copying and adapting here and there uh, the forms, criteria, and mechanisms through which uh, the rich world had reached uh, its affluence. And this criteria basically dominated development thinking, I would say, in the course of the 40s and the 50s. In the course of the 60s, there was a very strong reaction against this, saying that the South did not necessarily have to develop according to the same parameters of the North, and that this had not to do with the political ideological structures, that the basic problem was not one of choosing a capitalist or a socialist form of development, but that within capitalism or within socialism, the forms of development of the third world necessarily would be different and would respond to the specific characteristics of geography, culture, economic conditions, so that the idea of an, of an endogenous development, of a self-centered development, of a development recognizing the characteristics of each society, emerged very strongly. The idea of what Somavia calls a self-centered development emerged in relation to the experience of dependency, of being, in reality, powerless to bring about the type of development which Western societies both embodied and encouraged. Understanding of this point is crucial to a sympathetic appreciation of what lies behind the demand for a new order. Anthony Smith is a British writer on mass media and the author of The Geopolitics of Information. The New World Economic Order and the New World Information Order are labels for debates um, conducted at a very, very high level of abstraction, so abstract as to be sometimes uh, irrelevant to the the facts. Uh, There is, however, uh, it seems to me, a basic anguish at the root of the sometimes rather crudely expressed demand for a new information order on the part of the developing world. The, the basis of that anguish is the inability to build a nation uh, without uh, indigenous control of information. Uh, if a society is beholden to another for the operations of its, of its church, its theater, its moving image culture, the contents of its television, it's not really a, com- a country at all. Sovereignty is the basis of development. What has the whole struggle against colonialism been about if it hasn't been to establish sovereignty? And no sooner has constitutional sovereignty been developed that within a generation that appears to be meaningless to those who've achieved that sovereignty or or, or to the next generation. Um, Because uh, it's it's seen, in a sense, to be spurious. Now, it seems to me uh, that... It must be the case that they require some kind of cultural sovereignty if their political sovereignty is to be invested with any meaning at all, and if that political sovereignty is ever to be translated into rational, uh, local economic uh, decisions. Anthony Smith's interpretation of the New World Information Order enables us to understand the problem in a much more specific way than we have up till now. He argues that it is not just a question of the West versus the Third World in some sort of abstract ideological shootout. Rather, it is a question of Third World political elites, whatever their ideological stripe, 
try to get some purchase on the problems of their societies, which they cannot do without indigenous control of information. That elite must be searching around for some means by which it can communicate with the rest of the society, from which it is increasingly cut off because of the, the way in which it is subject, the elite is subject to the cultural messages of the West. Its children are driving around in American cars and looking at American television, or sometimes bits of British television. Um, they are uh, enthralled to American movies. The very instruments by which the society is governed, uh, the administrative apparatus, is more and more dependent on the processing of data which takes place more cheaply and efficiently uh, outside the country itself. Um, the, there is an appalling set of problems in setting up a radio and television services which reflect back to the masses of the society uh, their own cultural roots, without which there is no way really of linking the administrative elites with the um, probably still illiterate masses of the, of the country concerned. Right, one can just begin, if one just lets one's imagination work on those sets of problems, one can see how the lack of indigenous control of newspapers, radio, television, must be a, an appalling anguish for all those who seek to govern the society. Whether they seek to govern the society in an enlightened democratic way or, whether, or if they are the worst sort of uh, authoritarian uh, dictators, they still have this... Uh, appalling problem and it seems to me that so long as that uh, set of problems remains all of those societies must be tempted overwhelmingly towards authoritarianism uh, rather than uh, democratic values. The set of problems which Anthony Smith describes eventually found its political expression at UNESCO. How this came about is recounted by Tom McPhail the chairman of the Department of Communications at the University of Calgary and the author of Electronic Colonialism, a study of the New World Information Order debate. Historically, one can look at the United States withholding funds in 1973-74 in order to, in uh, essence, punish UNESCO for having excluded Israel from a Region 2 meeting. But what happened was, instead of punishing UNESCO and instead of, in a sense, driving them to bankruptcy so they'd beg the Americans to come back, instead a coalition of OPEC countries and a few socialist countries made up the shortfall in funds. In addition to making up the shortfall, of course, they then were able to go to the Director General and request very senior positions in return for the interim financing. So by the mid-1970s then, you, not, you have now a series of forces, that is third world countries with voting power, OPEC countries with financial power, and administrative positions from non-aligned third world and OPEC countries. And these administrative positions then allowed them to let contracts as a result, then, they pulled together and they financed a series of third-world experts who began to look at communication flow. There was a sort of interaction between the UNESCO Secretariat and a number of people worldwide, and I would say very prominently in Latin America, 
who began to question the structures of communication Juan Somavia and who began to pose a very central issue that is that in development in the same manner as you have policies of industrial development as you have policies of agricultural development as you have policies in relation to your monetary and financial affairs you also need policies in the field of communication so that the whole question of communication policies became in fact a subject of discussion analysis and debate progressively in the course of the first years of the 1970s in which as i have said there was a very strong uh, latin latin american presence in the analysis of the uh, present situation this led in 1976 to a very important meeting which took place in costa rica the principal subject was whether countries needed and if they did under what characteristics national communication policies to which was added the issue of international imbalance of information and the questioning of the international structures the meeting in costa rica led directly to the 1976 general conference of unesco in nairobi and it was here that a confusion developed which has marked the whole subsequent history of the debate left over on the agenda from a previous unesco conference was a soviet sponsored resolution on the mass media which called in one of its articles for government responsibility for communications this contentious resolution then became enmeshed with the question of the new information order the result particularly in the press was that the new information order became identified with the twin evils of soviet sponsorship and government control of media the heated debates at nairobi eventually ended in compromise the creation of the mcbride commission on international communications to look into the new information order question further but meanwhile the image of unesco had already been set in the western media the coverage of unesco and the world new world information order by the western media has been atrocious unesco for example at the belgrade uh, meetings covered about 154 resolutions only 11 resolutions were discussed in print and all 11 dealt with the new world information order and all were from a negative perspective if i can just uh, give you a small example when i was at unesco in paris in 1978 the ap correspondent on the first day of the meeting filed 10 stories the uh next day he picked up the international herald tribune to see what was used out of the 10 stories only two stories were used and the two stories dealt solely with the new world information order so the next day he filed only two stories and for the rest of the meeting he filed only two stories they only dealt with the new world information order and he could he joked about how he could get front page coverage if he used the word communist inspired and threat to a free press he said they were the magic words he said the editor loved that and it would wind up on the front page the good deal of the uproar in the north in relation to this whole debate is the result of an extremely ethnocentric view of things that is the belief which many have already shared in the economic front but that many continue to have in the communication front the belief that the south can only have legitimate information structures if they copy the information systems of 
the North. And I believe that that is simply not so. This whole debate, the, the question of the information models, have been covered by a very fine reductionism, I would call it, in the way the subject has been presented by uh, the majority Northern press. That is to say that the only thing that the Third World is looking for is for governmental control of the press. I must say that this is extremely simplistic view of the problem, not because this is not occurring. It is evident that where you lack democracy and fundamental freedoms, and this unfortunately happens uh, throughout the Third World, you will also lack a democratic information structure. But we will not accept that the principles and the ideals that we are defending be simply transformed into debate between problems of freedom of the press and control of the state. Nevertheless, as Somavia himself concedes, the role of the state is one of the issues, and one which Canadians are well-placed to understand. So far, the limited coverage given the New World Information Order issue in Canada has reflected the American point of view. But in fact, what a more thoughtful approach would surely reveal is that on this issue, Canada has more in common with the Third World than the United States. Fifty years ago, Graham Spry observed that in broadcasting, Canadians must choose between the state or the United States. And the history of television in Canada has shown his unheeded words to be even more true today than when they were spoken. For Third World countries today, the dilemmas are just the same. If you are trying to retain uh, in local control of cultural circumstances in a given society, you have to use the power of the state. Now, that does not mean to say you have to control the newspapers, but those two things can become very easily fused in the conditions of a developing society. But there is no way you can do it without uh, the intervention of the state now, in Western Europe, indeed in Canada too, we have constructed institutions in the era of broadcasting, radio and television, which are indeed, which do precisely that. The, the BBC, the Independent Broadcasting Authority, your own broadcasting organization, and so on, uses the power of uh, the national parliament to, to create uh, broadcasting institutions which help to maintain both pluralism and localism uh, and prevent the broadcasting institutions of your society and mine and many others in Western Europe being dominated as they otherwise would undoubtedly have been by the contents of the American networks. Now, um, somehow we have to translate, we have to use, we have to acknowledge that we have used those techniques as well for the same purposes when looking at the problems of those developing societies who are arguing for the same kind of, uh, of, of local controls. However, the dilemma arises from the fact that in the conditions of those developing societies, the power of the state is synchronous with the day-to-day -day control by government of the contents of the media, something which does not occur in Canada or in Western Europe. In other words, 
where the power of the state is great and countervailing powers within the society are lacking, state support for media readily turns into state control. This is an undeniable fact, but it doesn't therefore make foreign control of information any more desirable. It is, as Anthony Smith says, a dilemma and needs to be recognized as such. This whole problem is so riddled with dilemmas and internal contradictions that it's best to acknowledge that they're there and live with them rather than pretend that we, by rather haughtily indulging our own moral preferences and reading lectures to the, third, the leaders of the third world, that we're somehow doing, uh, doing good. Uh, I don't think we are. I, I've been to some of those conferences and deeply regret the way in which uh, Western journalists lecture spokesmen of the third world and third world journalists for not uh, observing uh, codes of journalism which are absolutely impossible and impractical in the circumstances of those societies. The most recent general conference of UNESCO was in Belgrade in 1980, and it was here that the report of the McBride Commission was tabled to the already predictable chorus of raspberries from the Western press. The commission took its name from its chairman, Senator Sean McBride of Ireland, and its report while in places uneven and contradictory, did significantly expand the scope of the debate by going beyond the simple polarization between state interests and private interests in the media. One of the ways in which this was done was by introducing the idea of democratization of communication, an aspect of the subject that was particularly stressed by the Latin American members of the commission, one of whom was the popular novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez. The other was Juan Somavia. The whole issue of the presence of the state has been, to a certain extent, denaturalized, because when you look at a society, the real problem is not confrontation between the owners of the media and the government. The real problem is how do you organize something that is not a bilateral relationship, but a trilateral one, that is, the media, whether they're privately owned or publicly owned, the state, which is the continuity of a country, and society, which is neither the state or the media. How is it that you get people into the act? How is it that social organizations, trade unions, women's movement, the churches, uh, different forms of expression of the organized people, how is it that they can express what they want from the communication systems? How can people say other than putting on the radio, putting off the radio, other than putting on uh, one channel or another, other than buying one paper or another. How is it that they can say what is it that they want in the process of communication? Now, we are normally told that this is done through the commercial structure. Uh, I and many people in Latin America believe that this is a totally insufficient way of establishing what we believe is a fundamental aspect of all of this, that is the accountability of those who hold media in their hands, be they public or private. When you are the administrator of means of communication, you in fact are exercising power within a society, and all power should be accountable. It should be, it should be accountable to the people. The McBride Commission not only brought new themes into the debate, like the democratization of communication, but also made concrete proposals. One of these was for the establishment of the International Program 
for the Development of Communication, the IPDC, also known as the Son of McBride. Its purpose is to make grants to communication projects in the Third World. The idea for the IPDC was originally proposed by the United States at the 1978 General Conference of UNESCO in Paris. Bill Harley is a consultant to the U.S. National Commission for UNESCO and was the head of the American delegation at the most recent meeting of the IPDC in Acapulco, Mexico. At the time of the 78 conference, uh, there were two proposals. One was uh, developed by the Third World, which called for an international bureau within UNESCO concerned solely with the mass media. The United States proposal was one in which originally there would have been a multiple agency uh, auspices. That is, we would have not only UNESCO, but the World Bank and the United UN Development uh, Program and ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, and so on. We would have several of these world agencies that have concerns for communication involved as co-equal uh, partners with UNESCO. Um, when we came to the negotiations, we lost out on that. The uh, Third World feels that uh, UNESCO is its spiritual home, and they didn't want anything to interfere with that. They didn't want to have the involvement of these other agencies, so we compromised the understanding this would be located within UNESCO, but the other organizations would be involved in a, a, um, a committee that would relate to the IPDC. I believe that at Acapulco, the United States pledged only $100,000 to That's the correct. program. That's right. That would seem to not be very much, <laughs> given your commitment to it. That's correct. It is not very much, though um, we think that, uh, that at this time, that's as far as we probably can go, though we think this will be have a multiplying effect. That is, our position is that... Um, the most constructive way for us to be involved in supporting the purposes of IPDC would be through a collaborative arrangement with AID, that is the, our Agency for International Development, and the private sector. So that uh, though this is a, a moderate amount, surely, and there were a number of uh, not so sly uh, comments about the fact that the richest country in the world seemed uh, in a position to give the least amount. Uh, we think that um, ultimately there can be uh, considerable support along this bilateral channel for uh, advancing the, uh, the program of the IPDC. At the Acapulco meeting, grants were pledged by a number of countries, including Canada, and a total of $910,000 was dispersed for projects like the new Pan-African News Agency and the Asia-Pacific News Network. The general tenor of the meeting was reported as less rhetoric, more cooperation, partly as a result of the fact that specific cases were involved and not just resolutions. Presuming that there was a new atmosphere, I asked Bill Harley what he thought the reasons for it were. Well, I think that um, we've been able to work effectively with what I would call the moderate elements in the uh, third world. The Africans particularly have uh, decided that the rhetoric, uh, that uh, some of the more um, radical elements within their group have uh, been uh, 
engaging in, as well as that from the Soviet bloc, is not very useful to them. Uh, after all, in the end, if they're going to get any substantial help for improving their communication infrastructures and so on, they're going to have to turn to the West. So that this constant uh, railing and inveighing against the, uh, the West uh, is rather off-putting to the sources of, of help that they're going to be depending on. And so the African group, uh, over the last few years, has uh, tend to take a conciliatory position and try and uh, forego political points in favor of working for uh, uh, pragmatic, uh, constructive approaches in cooperation with the West. I wonder if you think all the rhetorical excesses have been on one side. <laughs> oh, not quite, I'm sure, because uh, <clears throat> our side, so to speak, has uh, got pretty uh, uh, angry at uh, constant uh, uh, what we consider to be unfair charges and uh, insults and so on, this kind of thing. So occasionally the, uh, the rhetoric is ra rather heated. I cited at the beginning of the program several examples of the Western contribution to this heated rhetoric, and any abatement of it would surely be welcome. But I do think that the sanguine view of the Acapulco meeting proposed by Bill Harley and several of the U.S. press reports needs to be kept in perspective because the Americans have not yet demonstrated any real give on this issue. They have pledged only a small amount of money and stated that they will make their contributions mainly through the private sector and outside the framework of UNESCO. Nevertheless, the meeting at least did not end in a rhetorical standoff, as a number have in the past. And this brings us to an interesting and possibly connected point about the Canadian press coverage of the meeting. There wasn't any. Did the lack of controversy possibly turn off the Canadian press? Barry Zwicker, a former publisher of the journalism review Content, heard a report of the meeting by Eric Hamovich on CBC Radio Sunday morning and decided to investigate. I immediately began looking through back issues of the Globe and Mail to find the stories that I'd missed. And I looked and looked and looked and couldn't find anything. So then I phoned the Globe and Mail library and uh, they confirmed that the Globe had had nothing, okay? So, so here we have the leading paper in the country, had nothing. Then I did the same with the Toronto Star. I ended up uh, speaking with, with the librarian at the Star, and uh, she confirmed that the Star had run nothing uh, by way of news, but there had been an editorial criticizing the meeting that the Star had never reported, which must have puzzled the readers a little bit. So there, were, there was the largest paper in Canada, and there was the leading paper in Canada who had no report on this. So then I decided to call the Ottawa Citizen. I decided to, to, to do a, a spot check, as it were. The Ottawa Citizen I chose because it had used some of the strongest denigrating rhetoric about the New World Information Order all along. It ran our, uh, stories under headlines, for instance, that this was an Orwellian nightmare and that 1984 was being brought to us courtesy of UNESCO and so on. And so what I ascertained was that the Ottawa Citizen had not run anything either. Um, so then I uh, called Vancouver and I found out that the province had run nothing, but the Sun had run a reprint of a negative editorial from The Economist. Uh, and I had them read a bit of that, and, and it, was, it was not a news report. It, it was, a, it was a, a, shall we say, an interpretive piece to, to uh, be generous. And then uh, finally, uh, I called Halifax, and I ascertained, uh, again through the librarian, uh, 
who said it would be too much trouble to find them, but she was absolutely certain that only, quote, a couple of paragraphs, unquote, had run. So that was my spot check. I called Canadian Press, and, and the uh, person um, on the foreign desk at Canadian Press assured me, and I'm, I'm sure this is true, that actually CP moved several thousand words about the Acapulco Conference. Now, it's significant that it was not staffed by CP, and apparently there was no Canadian reporter there other than Eric Hamovich. I presume he's a freelancer. I don't know him. But the CP would have moved presumably AP copy. So at the best, uh, CP was moving uh, copy on this important subject uh, that had been written through foreign eyes. But the more significant thing is that CP is only one of the gatekeepers. And when you get down to the, down to the level of the city gatekeepers, uh, my spot check shows that... Uh, virtually nothing was run. Barry's vicar speculates that the reason for this might have something to do with the prejudices of those editors who must have seen the wire copy on Acapulco and decided it wasn't a story. I don't think that the editors think very much about the public interest in this particular topic. With this story about the New World Information Order, because it's so close to them, I don't think that their minds ask originally how interested the public is. They have an instant personal interest. Now, their instant personal interest, I think, isn't no, so much communications as it is ideology. Because the way that primarily the Americans have presented the debate over the New World Information Order as uh, just another aspect of the East-West struggle, they automatically identify with... with uh, threats as they see it to their freedom as they see it. And so when some copy came over the wire from CP that was not cast in these terms, but started to talk about $910,000, this is a very small amount, to assist uh, struggling third world news agencies, then since they didn't have their adrenaline uh, charged up by uh, threats to their freedom and all sorts of ideological, rhetorical stuff like that, but they just had to deal with a story that $910,000 had been voted to help struggling third world news agencies and that there were not big debates, they said, this isn't very important news. <laughs> so, uh, and they exactly missed it because this is the most important news, one could, one could posit, that has come out of the thing so far. The future of the New World Information Order, however, remains problematic. The Acapulco meeting of the IPDC, the International Program for the Development of Communication, did at least get down to cases and even voted funds, though in rather small amounts, for a number of projects, including long-dreamed-of regional news agencies in Asia and Africa. But the policy of the United States remains a major obstacle to any real reconciliation of positions on the question of unequal information exchange. And without reconciliation, the consequence can only be the exclusion of American networks, news agencies, and other media interests from the countries of the Third World. Tom McPhail. I think the uh, Reagan administration is giving us the last best shot we have at keeping the 19th century intact. I think that the Reagan administration is severely out of step with the direction of the Western world, as, and even further out of step with the 
direction of the South in terms of the North-South dialogue. I think in the area of communications, clearly the uh, Republican owners and proprietors of the large U.S. newspapers endorsed and helped get Ronald Reagan elected. And he is going to repay them for that favor. And he'll repay them, of course, by taking very hard line at uh, United Nations debates on the New World Information Order. And clearly the very little enthusiasm, short of being destructive at IPDC in Acapulco, I think is another example of this. Whereas the United States could provide enormous leadership in this issue. And we're only talking in terms of the U.S. A few million dollars would go a long way in aiding third world nations to set up some uh, domestic information systems. And yet they won't. In fact, they're going to cut back on what modest, what very little they were doing. And there's no reason why the third world uh, should believe that their hope lies in uh, adhering to or supporting U.S. policies. In fact, it is not in their self-interest from a straight uh, capitalistic sense to support the U.S. position. And they're going to step in and set up some rules. And some of those rules will mean the U.S. media is excluded from their territory. And I think that is a shame. I think that we need more coverage of the third world, not less. But that's going to be the net effect. Exclusion of more and more U.S. broadcasting and communications firms from third world countries. The exclusion of U.S. and other Western reporters from third world countries is in fact already happening, and much worse than exclusion. Journalists are censored, banned, tortured, and sometimes killed. The question is, how are we to understand the cause of these actions? Western media commentary on the New World Information Order debates has tended to suggest that those demanding change are responsible, whether directly or indirectly, for the epidemic of censorship, ostracism, and sometimes physical violence against the press and its agents. But what I have tried to suggest in this program is that these commentators may have got things the wrong way round, that the suppression of journalistic freedoms, in other words, may be the consequence of the lack of a New World Information Order and not of the fact that desperate nations have demanded one. It follows that until the justice of these demands is at least recognized, the situation can only grow worse. You've been listening to The Politics of Information. This was the second program in a four-part series, and it was called Decolonizing the News. The program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Producer, Max Allen. Technical Operations, Joanne Anker. International Liaison and Production Assistance, Allison Moss. I'm Sharon Dunn. A reading list is available for this series, and it includes publications by the people you heard tonight. We'll send you a free copy if you'll write to us at Ideas, CBC, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W. This is CBC Stereo.